This is the Master Brewers Podcast, brought to you by the Master Brewers Association of the Americas, a volunteer organization dedicated to continually improving the products and processes of our membership since 1887. Master Brewers brings you interviews with the industry's best and brightest in brewing science, technology, and operations. This Master Brewers podcast is proudly sponsored by Hopsteiner, a global leader in the hop industry focused on quality, sustainability, and innovation in new hop varieties and hop products. Contact our brewery sales team to provide you with the hop-related tools you need to craft your next great beer. For more information, visit hopsteiner.com. Additional support provided by... Get to know Proximity Malt. We malt superior, European-style, low-protein varieties grown close to home in Delaware and Colorado. Domestically grown, precisely malted to style. With our team of seasoned experts and two brand-new malt houses, try what's really new in malt. Check us out at www.proximitymalt.com. And the simplification then begs the question, if, if we are looking at things that say the same thing within a bundle, why can't we focus on just the very best measurement in each bundle and greatly reduce the, um, the focus on a certificate of analysis? This week on the show, Joe Hertrick discusses what really matters on a malt COA. Joe's knowledge is vast with over 50 years of experience in the industry. He's held positions with Stroh, Pabst, Christian Schmidt, and he's a retired group director of brewing raw materials at Anheuser-Busch. He's a consultant, a mentor to the Craft Malsters Guild, and a lecturer during the Master Brewers Brewing and Malting Science course, among many other things. This episode originally aired as a four-part series in late 2016. We'll be back next week with a brand new episode that you won't want to miss. You get a COA from your from your malt supplier, and there's a whole bunch of different param- parameters on that on that analysis. Some of which seem to say maybe some of the same stuff. Uh, which of these parameters should brewers really be focusing on? You can get you can get probably over twenty items now on a uh, COA, and it can be daunting to sort through them. But I want to sort of take the position and talk about. They're not all necessary. Some of them are redundant, and I think I can. I think I can offer a simplified way of of what to concentrate on. Um, first of all, maybe simplifying our thoughts. Uh, start with uh, some history. Um, a reminder that we always haven't had the tools that we have today, and we were very successful. I mean, malt was made for thousands of years without today's scientific measurements or laboratories, and it was all based on a couple of simple um, process um, observations. Uh, for example, one of the things that's always been understood about malting is that malting successful if the acrospires get to be exceed three quarters of the length of the kernel. Also, malting is successful if when you part the kernel, a green malt kernel toward the end of malting, if it completely smears freely without any hard particles in it. And then uh, it's successful malting if you can keep uh, a very nice, uh, fresh P 
peeled cucumber aroma all through it, and there's no evidence of uh, musty or moldy things. So, you know, again, there was no laboratories involved in this and no scientific method. And, and this was true also for finished malt. What I just described was sort of monitoring the uh, malting process, but the... Um, Finished malt was simply evaluated by a chew, sort of the the human version of a friability meter. That um, that uh, if there was no residual hard particles and it had a good flavor and aroma, uh, malting was successful. Now, even after we had some scientific method, as, as recently as 1934, I, int- I, I read an interesting article. Now, this is, think about this, this is right after Prohibition. It's before the founding and creation of the American Society of Brewing Chemists. And the U.S. Brewers Academy, or and I'm sorry, not Academy, Association, the U.S. Brewers Association tried to make a definition of how malt analysis should, should be presented and what represented quality. Malt. And it's very interesting. At that time, outside of a few physical measurements like moisture or assortment or variety, they only suggested three chemical analysis or wet chemistry analysis to define malt. Extract, the coarse fine difference, and the color of the malt. Life was, was simpler no, back then, huh? Sure, it sure was. It sure was, and it was. This is way before there was any discussion of measuring protein or or enzymes or things like that. And um, I think what um, is is true all throughout history is that extract has been a proxy for modification. If you look at very, very old analysis like the Hartung Index series or the British uh, cold water extracts, they're, they're indicators of what kind of extracts available in the malt without mashing it, without activating enzyme systems, that type of thing. And it, it was it's just looking at this as extract and coarse fine difference. They're saying what people have known for a long time, good extract is a proxy for modification. They went on to, besides describing those three analyses, then they went on to say, here's how you should grade malt in standard grade, choice grade, or fancy grade. And again, the focus was on modification and growth because the grading scores to get from standard to fancy the extract increased, the coarse fine difference was reduced, the growth counts um, over three quarters of a length increased, but the color stayed the same all through that period. So I thought that was very interesting. And, and even then moving up to, I was looking at some analysis from 1965, you know, 30 years later, we still, after the, um, after the physical measurements, we were still satisfied to describe malt with seven numbers, the extract, coarse fine difference, color, but we started measuring protein, total and soluble, and we started measuring enzymes and reporting them at that time, diastatic power and alpha amylase, but still nowhere near the complexity that we're at today. So my, I think the way to simplify malt analysis is, is to, to look at what is the what is the indicators that show that the transition from barley to malt has been completed? And to to really, really demonstrate that that's the most important function going on, that if you can make the transition from barley to malt, there's a number of things that are just outcomes that don't need to be reported and cluttered up the analysis because they are, with, they are there with certainty. 
um, if we think, if we take off our brewer's hat for a minute, and we we consider what the barley kernel is trying to accomplish and what its goal is in nature. If you planted a seed in the soil, a barley seed or any other seed, in the spring, it would activate with warmth and moisture. It would create a set of enzymes. And then in the, in the, in the plant world, it would completely digest the kernel to create a barley plant, just getting roots down and getting a, a leaf up above the soil. And the work of the, the kernel is done as soon as there's a green plant above the soil and it starts to, to, to work photosynthetically. If we think about this from then, what do we want to do from brewers and as maltsters and brewers standpoint, we want to do the same activation of the kernel with warmth and moisture. We want to create all those enzymes, but we're not going to grow barley plants. We want to just partly digest kernel structures. And then in malting, where we really deviate from nature, then we go ahead and finish it with kilning uh, to develop flavor and color. Now, look at where the alignment is here between nature and malting and brewing interests. Um, and that alignment is we absolutely want to create enzymes and we want to do a controlled digestion of structure. And that's today's focus. I'm going to put kilning and, and flavor and color off as a topic for another uh, podcast, but I want to focus on this um, creation of enzymes and the partial digestion of structures as a way to really simplify what is on, what is important on a um, certificate of analysis. Now, I, th I think we can look at analysis and we can say to ourselves that there are some redundant analysis present. We, we have a, hint, a habit of developing new techniques and improved techniques, but not throwing out the old measurement techniques. And I'll give you some examples as we go along. But I think just about everything on a certificate of analysis can be categorized and grouped into four bundles. There'd be bundle one would be a measure of protein modification, and there's a lot of measurements in there. Bundle two would be the measure of carbohydrate modification. Uh, bundle three is the measurement of enzyme potential, and I, th I think that sounds like it's in reverse, but I can tell you that if protein modification and carbohydrate modification take place, the inference is there that the enzymes were there and present. The reason enzymes have to be looked at as a separate bundle is they're influenced by kilning. So when you look at enzymes on a malt analysis, you're not really looking at were they originally created. You're looking at were they preserved through the kilning process. And then the bundle four are measures of color and flavor. And just think about this. I just mentioned we started with 20 items. I believe every one of those virtually can be put into one of these four categories. And the simplification then begs the question, if, if we are looking at things that say the same thing within a bundle, why can't we focus on just the very best measurement in each bundle and greatly reduce the, um, the focus on a certificate of analysis? That makes sense to me. Yeah, well, I think we can do it. There's, there's a, um, so let's start and talk about protein modification for a minute. And, and let's start with what is actually happening in the kernel. Um, and what do you want to really measure? 
you want to measure, has there been adequate digestion of insoluble barley protein into usable soluble protein forms for brewing? We know that um, there's uh, the insoluble barley protein is not usable in terms of amino groups, in terms of creating uh, foam, in terms of creating body. It's not as usable as the modified forms that come after malting. So we want to make sure that we create nutrients for yeast. We want to make sure we create the mid-sized proteins for flavor and for foam. And we also have to manage the bigger proteins that are going to get involved in hazes and sediments. But it's very important. We have to have indications. Has there been adequate digestion? There's another very important part of protein modification that sometimes is missed. And it has to do with its link to carbohydrate modification. We have to make sure that there's enough protein modification that we get to the endosperm cell wall where the beta-glucan and arabinoxylan is because we think of the cell wall structures as being primarily beta-glucan and arabinoxylan, but it also is about 10% protein. And there has to be digestion of the protein content of the cell wall to enable beta-glucanase into that part of the structure to digest beta-glucan. And one of the, one of the shortcomings that often, ha often happens when beta-glucan is not reduced, it's because protein modification wasn't advanced far enough to, to allow um, endosperm cell wall reduction to let the beta-glucanase in. And I, I, I put this in simpler terms as good protein modification is actually the low beta-glucan enabler. We have to get broken up in that cell wall, the protein portion of it. So that, that's interesting, Joe, because I, I was yep. going to ask if you if you maybe were going to consider a fourth bucket of cytolytic modification. But it sounds like um, I, I was originally thinking that maybe you were going to say that was inferred if you have the carbohydrate modification. But mm -hmm. it sounds like really you can also infer that from from some of the protein modification as well. It's 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 two steps. It, it, it's it, it if you if you had that it, the bundle would not be standalone, John. It crosses over, though. In other words, carbohydrate modification is going to be is going to be the freeing of the extract right. by the action of beta-glucanase and, and, and other uh, enzymes attacking pentazans. But this part of it I'm saying is if you don't have well-modified malt protolytically, the beta-glucanase, even though it's created, is never going to get a chance to work in the cell wall. Um, so the, the two overlap. Um, and it's, uh, I would guess, I guess I would state it as good cytolytic reduction is the artifact of the combined protolytic and carbohydrate uh, uh, reduction. That makes good sense to me. So what kind of measurements do we have then in the protein areas where we might have some overlap as we get into the uh, certificate analysis? We know that protein is measured, total protein and soluble protein are measured, but they're not really important standalone. What they're really important for is to create the S over T ratio, the Kolbach index, which is the percentage of the total barley protein that has been reduced and has become soluble protein. So it's, it's the simple mathematics of soluble protein over total protein equals, um, equals ratio. We also have um, a, a measurement of free amino nitrogen. This, is, this came along as making sure that there's enough of the simple 
excuse me, of the simple amino groups um, available for use nutrition. Now, this test really doesn't measure just amino acids. It measures ammonia, um, N-group uh, nitrogen that's on more complex peptides. But, it, it, but it's an indicator is, has there been enough reduction to allow um, plenty of simple amines for yeast? Uh, also, we can measure in the protein modification area, pH. One of the things that happens in, in uh, malting is as the uh, reduction and digestion of the kernel takes place, the pH uh, reduces, uh, drops down. And um, the um, uh, well-modified malts tend to be down in the um, 5.8 and 5.9 ranges. Malts that aren't well-modified will be above 6. We also think of, because protein modification does mean creation of enzymes, we also think of alpha amylase as a protein uh, modification issue. And it's here, and I emphasize alpha amylase is here, but diastatic power is not, because alpha amylase is relatively um, insensitive to kilning and survives kilning quite well. You can't put <laughs> diastatic power here because uh, it is heavily affected by uh, kilning, and I'll, I'll, I'll speak to that a little bit later in, um, when we talk about enzymes. But here we have a whole bunch of measurements. You can make total protein, soluble protein, the um, S over T ratio, free amino nitri nitrogen, pH, and alpha amylase. And I would say in this protein modification bundle, the, all, the most important and the most significant one is S over T ratio, um, the Cobalk Index, because that's the measure of progress um, of the protein modification function of the kernel. Uh, so I, I would just sort of put a pin in that in protein and sort of stick it on the side here that we want to remember that Cobalk, ind Cobalk Index is really, really important. Um, now, if we skip over to um, carbohydrate modification and call that bundle two, what what's really important here and what we're trying to understand is, has there been adequate digestion of the dense barley endosperm structure, the cell walls, the long chain starches, so that this malt can be easily milled, easily extracted, and that the extract is free-flowing for enzymes in the mashing process. And uh, we really need to, what we're really trying to understand is there recoverable extract, and can we get consistent attenuation? Because a lot of people that look at inconsistent attenuation think of it as an enzyme problem, but in some cases it's not. In some cases it's Erratic attenuation has to do with the quality of the extract that the enzymes are working on. So, to me, it's very important that it's comprehensively modified and free-flowing so that the enzymes will get its, a, a um, consistent attenuation result. So, we have, you know, we have extract measurements um, that, uh, that we can get. We also have the fine course different measurement. Um, a measure of carbohydrate modification is viscosity um, because it's a measure of how free-flowing the extract is. Um, there's a um, um, the measure of beta-glucan um, that um, is um, 
given to us now on on um, on malt analysis and also uh, and I'll talk about this separately I put it under carbohydrate modification but friability if uh, if in the case of a friability meter being used so in this particular case if we step back a minute we want protein modification to be complete and it has to be completed in the malt house because we can't do very much in the brewery with poor poor protein modification and we want all the enzymes formed and we want the um, the the proteins totally digested but in carbohydrate modification we had to be very careful we want it to be reduced and free flowing but we don't want to start consuming the extract as going a, a step too far in building this uh, new barley plant now the importance of these to the brewer the the importance of protein modification um, and carbohydrate modification the brewing impacts of these are relatively the same they they involve reduced extract recovery because the extract hasn't been reduced they they involve slower runoffs and more turbid warts um, and again erratic attenuation achievement and i want to i want to emphasize this because it's erratic attenuation achievement not because of erratic enzymes but because in varying levels of modified malts you'll get varying levels of condition of the extract exposed to the enzymes uh, in the extreme we can get to beer filterability and uh, physical stability problems uh, and uh, it really is important for malt functionality to have strong protein modification strong carbohydrate modification now i should insert that there are risks to over modification if you over modify protein wise you over modify uh, carbohydrate wise you tend to work toward thinner beer body and flavor and you can you have no negative impacts on on foam um, but I would explain this in, in terms that a brewer would understand. I always explain this as the risks of under-modification and over-modification are not symmetrical. It's similar to when you're um, pitching yeast cells into wort to begin fermentation in the sense of risk. It, you'd like to pitch exactly the right amount of yeast. However, the risks of underpitching and having a low cell count at the beginning of fermentation are much greater and there are much more negative outcomes than the risk of overpitching and having too high a cell count at the start of fermentation. The the analogy is it carries through here. There are many, many more risks of under modification on protein and under modification on carbohydrates than there is to um to uh over modification now there was one other bundle that i would talk about here and that's bundle number three which is the carbohydrate enzymes now notice that in malt we don't measure protein enzymes uh, we measure carbohydrate enzymes because again conceptually in malting all the protein work should be done before the malt leaves the malt house and the carbohydrate enzymes should be there for brewers to utilize in the mashing process so in the terms of carbohydrate enzymes we're not really concerned was there enough developed because we're if we have good modification we were know they were developed but really what we want to measure the carbohydrate enzymes for is were they preserved during kilning because uh, that can be an issue if you would look at 
the uh, any standard two row um the dp of it on the last day of germination before it went to kiln uh, that level of dp could be 210 to 240 uh units put it through a normal brewer's kilning process and you go ahead and you have a finished malt with um 140 or 150 dp it's 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 standard and it's a known phenomenon that a third of the dp is going to be damaged on the kiln so usually whenever you don't have enough dp in malt for whatever reason uh it's not because it wasn't created in the malt house because it wasn't preserved during kilning but we're going to talk in a minute we have more than enough uh dp uh present for um uh, for all malt brewers to use so if we took these bundles bundle number one and we put a pin in s over t was the most important measure and if we take carbohydrate as bun modification as number two, we should put a pin in beta-glucan as the most single best indicator of carbohydrate modification. And then number three, because we got to make sure DP survived on the kiln, we're interested only in uh, DP coming out of that bundle. Now, again, if we added color and um the and and, and um, then we would have four um, attribute bundles, but we're going to put color and flavor off for another pod, podcast. So if you took the traditional COA for malt and you looked at this, you could actually pull out the four most important numbers. Uh, and actually, I might even drop enzymes for being the most important for all malt brewers because they're in excess of what they need. Enzymes become a much more material issue for adjunct brewers where they're going to dilute the malt attributes with some adjunct. But the most important attributes to really focus on are the um, S over T ratio and um, beta-glucan. It really, um, it, it, these other analysis ha are subsets of those two, or they're measurements that measure the same thing that are very good, that, that are good, but they're, they're obsolete now. Probably in the extract area is the best, um, the, um, um, the best way to explain how analysis becomes obsolete, John. First of all, we had fine course difference. Uh, years ago. That's an excellent, easy to understand analysis. You grind the malt very finely and see how much extract there is. A grind that's so fine, you could not execute it in the brewery. Then you grind the malt, very coarse um, grind, similar to what we used in the brewery. Get the extract from each of those and subtract them. And, and a measure of how um, how well modified the malt is is how big or small the difference is between those two um the uh, the goal would be to asymptotically approach the fine grind uh, malt extract with the coarse grind because it would mean no matter how you ground the malt you were going to get a good extract from it and typically well modified malts today have a difference of 1.0 between uh, the two extract numbers you have to be careful if uh, fine grind differences are, are higher than say one seven up toward two oh but here's the problem with that analysis today we're talking about very as we get very well modified malts we get um very very small differences 
between very, very large numbers. And you might be trying to look at the difference between a a 71 or an 81.5 extract on a course and an 82.5 extract on a fine grind to get a fine course difference of one. The problem is that that difference is exceeded by the in lab variation in the extract analysis. Huh. And if you and if you talk if you talk to maltsters, they say, well, quite frequently we run that analysis and we get a negative number. Right. So, so, so you're saying that's yeah. that's the reason for that is because extracts have increased over time. Is that? What you're and saying? we have a. a Partly because they've increased over time, and partly as we've learned more, we've had a higher extra, higher expectation for a lower course fine. Okay, that makes sense. But now we're talking about a very, very small difference between very, very large numbers. There's another practical problem for um, malt labs, and that is they have to bash twice as many samples. Yeah. Just just to get that difference number. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, and in fact, in, in fact, in some labs, um, they actually now have proven the relationship between viscosity and beta glucan, and they can estimate the course fine if you require. But here's, but it's just a number. It's it's a methodology that has been passed by, and, and first of all, it was passed by viscosity and viscosity is a good uh, concept also i mean it's an engineer the engineering definition of viscosity is resistant to flow now who wouldn't be uh, in favor of low resistance to flow right yeah, in the yeah. brewery? so but again you're dealing with viscosity numbers that on a well-modified malt might say be 1.44 and on a not well-modified malt might be 1.52. There's not very many significant numbers out there in the hundreds digit that differentiate from a well-modified to a poorly modified. And, and, and all of these have kind of really been passed by, by beta-glucan. Um, that, that's so, interesting. You know, I, yeah. I, I'm, gl- I'm glad to know. Um, I've always sensed that maltsters, you know, really didn't like the course fine difference. So it's, yeah, it's interesting yeah. to, to know the history on that. Um, now, you, you, you bring up beta-glucan again. You, yeah, you stuck a yeah. pin in that earlier. Um, you know, but I've noticed, I agree with you, it's a very important um, parameter here. But, you mm-hmm. know, a lot of maltsters don't even put that on the COA. Why would that be? Well, it's it has it has a wide variation um, between labs and and maltsters don't they don't like to they don't like they, they don't like to work with numbers that have wide laboratory variations because they're invariably going to get involved in discussions with with brewers over the meaning of those numbers and the and the and the lab variation, um, but. But but beta glucan is really really in, important and um, and it's important from more than from from a couple perspectives the from a malting process perspective um, beta gluconases are formed very late in the malting process and um, in germination and this goes back to the to the thinking of the barley kernel. The barley kernel is saying, I need to get all the protolytic enzymes up and running. And I need, and because a, proto, a protolytic enzyme is actually producing enzymes. I mean, an enzyme is a protein in chemical structure. So that whole protolytic system has to be up and running. And it's a secondary thing to start digesting the endosperm to turn it into a barley plant. So 
after the proteolytic enzymes are up and running and the carbohydrate enzymes are up and, and running, beta-glucanases come very late in germination. And also, because the protein modification has to simplify the cell wall structures first to allow access in, uh, we know it's a later process uh, during, during germination. And beta-glucan reduction, then, in this sequence is the last major modification event in, the, um, in germination. So, I like it as, as a brewer who supervises and monitors malting. From a malting process perspective, low beta-glucans indicate that you, you have a product that came out of a patient and completed malting process. Coming up. There's no one S over T that is correct for every single variety. If you picked a number 44S over T, I can give you varieties that are over-modified at 44, and I can give you varieties that are under-modified at 44. I'm John Bryce, and you're listening to the Master Brewers Podcast from the Master Brewers Association of the Americas. Support for this podcast is brought to you by ABS Commercial is a full-service brewery and parts outfitter. From our Raleigh headquarters to our Denver office, we proudly offer brew houses and fermenters from three barrels and up, yeast brinks, boilers, kegs, chillers, tri-clamp, and other stainless parts, all with the quickest delivery and lead times in the industry. Learn more at abs-commercial.com or call 877-BREW-ABS. ABS Commercial. We are brewers. Additional support provided by Whitcomb Selinsky McAuliffe PC serves all brewers in registering and protecting trademarks, navigating the label approval process, and assisting with OSHA inspections and safety compliance. Please go to WSMLawPC.com for more information. Here's what's coming up on the Master Brewers calendar. Don't miss the Maintaining a Clean Brewery webinar March 28th. Several districts meet the last weekend in March. District Texas and San Antonio, District Mid-Atlantic at Basic City Brewing in Waynesboro, and District Midwest at Rheingeist in Cincinnati. District Pittsburgh meets April 15th. The Brewery Packaging and Technology course starts in Madison April 21st. District St. Louis meets April 25th at Second Shift Brewery. The 58th Annual District Caribbean Convention joins forces with Districts Southeast and Miami May 2nd through the 5th. This is going to be a big meeting with lots of great speakers, including folks who've been on this podcast. Joe Hertrick, Andrew Fradiani, John Mallett, Roy Johnson, Dr. John Paul May, Andy Tavikram, and more. District Philly also meets May 3rd at 2 SP Brewing. If you're barrel aging, don't miss the May 9th webinar screening for lactobacillus acetotolerans in a brewery setting. District St. Paul, Minneapolis meets May 16th at the Star Keller in New Ulm. District St. Louis is at Old Bakery Brewery May 16th. And District Northern Illinois meets at Half Acre Beer May 31st. It's time to start making plans for the 2019 Master Brewers Conference. If you can only make it to one conference in 2019, this should be it. We're really mixing things up this time and heading to the Calgary Convention Center to see how Alberta celebrates Halloween. Check out the full calendar of events at mbaa.com for more details or to find a district meeting near you. Now back to the show. 
can't rush the molding process and come up with a low beta glucan. That makes sense. Um, now, yeah. I'm surprised though that you're not uh, a little surprised that you don't prefer viscosity over beta glucan because isn't that going to catch uh, problems from beta glucan as well as problems from other areas like pentazans and things like that? They are, they are very, very closely related. Okay, they, they, there's probably, if of, of any carbohydrate analysis, modification analysis that line up, they, viscosity and beta-glucan line up with a very, very uh, repeatable relationship. Right. My, my preference for beta-glucan is on the scale of significant numbers. Again, in viscosity, you might only have six or eight significant numbers out in the hundreds digit between okay. one, 1. 1.44 and 152. In beta-glucan, you have a range of significant numbers from 80 to 220. So the scale, you, have a much, you have a much broader scale. It's true that the um, in-lab, um, that the in-lab, the um, in-lab variation of the analysis is, is wide, but still there's a lot more significant numbers to work for work with over the range. There's another reason that I like beta-glucan as well as um, S over T ratio. Since the monster's job is to manage growth, that happens to be the number, um, the two numbers that they use to manage the malting process. Now, there's no, there's no inline. All you can do when, when mold is, is germinating is you can look at the growth counts and you can look at the, the length of the acrospire and you can feel the moisture. But there's no uh, real-time analysis, as we think of mold analysis on finished malt that's going on. And what a maltster does is at the end of the process, when he does the mold analysis, he has all those numbers, but he only looks at S over T and beta-glucan to manage the process in the rearview mirror by going back and making steeping changes and germination temperature and watering changes. Those are the key numbers that the monsters manage the process with. Okay. So it's, it's, it's really interesting that they'll say, you know, I don't think beta-glucan means very much to the brewer, and we don't want you to make a spec for it, but it's what they use to, to run their process. Yeah. <laughs> So it's it's really important, and I was I was saying it from the process perspective, but from a brewing process perspective, it's really interesting to look at it now as um, the glue that holds the extract together. You know, beta glucan will significantly interfere with runoff and wort turbidity at levels above 200, 225. My own personal experience with beta-glucan interfering with things in the malt house was back in the 80s, in the beginning of beta-glucan measures, and we had some uh, some two-row, some clogus at 220, and it just tied our brew house in knots uh, as we were learning what levels worked and not worked. Now, that's not a level that you see anymore. Everybody is past that point of getting a beta-glucan that is lower than what interferes with the um, with runoff and wort turbidity. However, it's really important now to look at lower beta-glucan levels as the glue that holds extract together, and it prevents the easy release in mashing. So a lower beta-glucan really assures free-flowing extract for repeatable attenuation and high recovery rates in the brew house. And you see a lot of two-row malts now that are delivered at 80 to 100, uh, for certainly under 120 beta-glucan. And it's the pathway to um, 
it's the pathway to really good extract recovery. And if we were able to measure, if we didn't have the differences um, in that extract analysis, if we were still looking at coarse fine, when we see that beta-glucan down at 100, um, we can we would see coarse fines if we could accurately measure them at 0.8 or 0.5. We'd see that coarse grind extract asymptotically approaching the fine grind extract, and we've reached success. I did a lot of work on this at one time because I was concerned that where is the point? Where is the inflection point that you modify so far that you can start to consume extract? In other words, can you as you're trying to get the, the, the fine grind and the extracts up and up and up by a modification at some point do you t bend over and start to lose extract because you're consuming it as products of modification and i can tell you on the varieties i was working on i never reached that point i was getting the course almost identical to the fine but i hadn't started to lose extract wow. but that but that lives but that leads us to one other point um with maltsters maltsters do look at well modified malt as a risk to them for malting loss um, because what we get as very functional malt in rail cars to them is a possibility that they're starting to see uh, poor yields and malting losses as they're making a more functional malt for us yeah. so there's a there's a little bit of a, a conflict and a back and forth there that makes sense but, but, what, you, but what we need to focus on for us is functionality of the malt yeah of course hey, I have just one other question for you about mm -hmm. beta-glucan um, you you know, I know one of the biggest problems is that you can form these gels if you've got too much of it, and, and I know that's also largely dependent on um, the amount of shear force. Um, mm -hmm. So I'm wondering if, if you've noticed, uh, you know, the, the number, the limits you threw out for beta-glucan, do you think that that is um, uh, a good number no matter what uh, your brew house looks like in, in a craft brewery, or do you think there are some brew houses that can tolerate uh you know, different levels of beta-glucan based on, you know, not having a lot of sheer force from a lot of stirring or pumping yeah. and things like that. Yeah, I, you know, I think it's more, maybe, maybe it's not the sheer force in mashing so much as the depth of grain beds. The time that I had trouble with 220 in, um, I was, I was operating with like a 25 inch grain bed in the loudering that I was doing at that time. Later on, um, I worked with breweries that had invested more in loudering that had 10 inch grain beds and those kind of numbers didn't affect it. Um, but, uh, uh, I don't know, John. I, I would say that typically, typically you're probably fine with with uh, two row malts in the 140. You might not get the extract release, but I doubt in any mashing and loudering system that'll interfere with um, with um, um, performance on runoff. But I think this is a place where a, a, malt, a brewer should reach a relationship of malt to his specific equipment and his specific brewing system this is a case where a brewer should say okay i'm going to document every every batch of malt that i use i'm going to document the beta glucan level specifically just that one number against my brew house performance whatever is most important to him in brew house performance whether it be runoff time whether it be number of cuts whether it be deep cuts mashups whatever he uses as a good standard of brew house performance he should take and keep a, a, a running record of when i have this beta glucan 
uh, I have the performance that I like. If I go above X number on beta-glucan, my performance starts to deteriorate. And that would be true of, of, um, of extract yields, and it would also be true of, um, of runoff performance. However, however an individual brewer um, estimates his runoff performance, whether it be speed or whether it be number of cuts. And so I guess the, the rest of the answer to your question, I think everything is fine in the 140 range. Different systems might start to respond poorly to 160, 180, 200 um, at different levels, at different degrees. That's great. Thanks for answering that, Joe. By the way, for all the all those of you listening who heard uh, Joe mention a lauder bed depth of 10 inches, um, for those of you in the craft beer world, that, that may seem pretty small, but uh, mm-hmm. if you've ever seen a, a, a very large lauder tone at, at one of the major brewers, it's mm-hmm. true. A lot of those uh, bed depths are only 10, 12 inches, and they get some pretty screaming fast lauder processes with that too. So, and there's a reason for that from 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 the breweries that do it that way. They have a very strong feelings about the impact of hot time on an over extraction on beer flavor and beer stability. And the brewery that I'm talking about that has eight and ten and twelve inch grain beds, they want to minimize the process time while the while the grain the mash the grains the wort is hot. That's right. Uh, because they want the cleanest, fastest, what they believe is the pathway to to a very fresh, uh, crisp beer taste. Cool. There's another thing I want to mention for the benefit of um, of craft brewers is I want to I'm going to mention uh, friabilometers. Because if you have a wet chemistry lab and you can get uh, S over T ratios or Colbox and you can get beta-glucan, you don't necessarily have to have a friabilometer. But a friabilometer is a real useful tool if you don't have a wet chemistry lab. Or if you want to, or if you want to have your, um, if you want to have your uh, monster report friability and sometimes you can get a friability result easier than you can get a monster to report a beta glucan result. Now, and friabilometers are they're valuable because think of it as a, a functional analysis of the whole malt system instead of an individual analysis for protein modification and an individual analysis for carbohydrate modification. This is sort of the comprehensive measure of modification. Does the whole malts work as a system? Um, So they're relatively simple devices, and I think it's more likely that maybe a craft brewer would have a friabilometer instead of a wet chemistry lab. The other thing that craft brewers um, should prepare for probably is most craft craft maltsters will not have a full wet chemistry lab and will not be reporting um, Kolbach ratios and beta-glucan. But it's relatively simpler for them to not have a full chemistry lab and have a friabilometer to um, evaluate their results. But they're very, um, they're very useful. And uh, they're pretty, get, pretty inexpensive yep. too, aren't they? What, like around yeah, three think, or four grand uh, or something? No, I think they're maybe closer to eight. Oh, okay. I think it's closer to eight, maybe, um, for the uh, puffer, the um, the uh, industry standard. There may be other manufacturers of, of them, but the ones that I'm familiar with, uh, uh, they're in that area of $8,000. But the, the place, again... The place where they're not they they the place where they're most useful is to think about two things. You can get a comprehensive view of modification without a wet chemistry profile, 
and it's a it's a consolidated modification it tells you about the malt protein and carbohydrate as a system instead of looking at individual components so um i have to i have to point out one other thing that's very important and that is that modification profiles when you talk about things like uh, s over t ratio and beta glucan they are very variety dependent in other words there's a this concept of protein modification must penetrate and free the extract cell wall material to allow the gluconases to get at the beta glucan that varies by variety and it's a hard thing to understand for some um brewers that look at maybe an expectation of one s over t is the correct s over t you can't apply that there's not one s over t that's exactly right for every variety and if you and and it probably explains a, a lot about the way people feel about um different varieties um in Europe, the breeding programs in Germany, uh, in the UK, they still have as a goal, they do not want any variety that requires higher than about a 40 S over T to allow penetration and to reduce the um, beta-glucan. Now, in the United States, our varieties have evolved quite a bit. When, when up until... Up until um, the early 70s, we didn't have any two-row breeding in the United States. We only had varieties that were were brought here and adapted and grew, and they were European two-rows. And when I started in brewing, the 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 um, the predominant two-rows were Hanschen and Pirolin and Betze. They were all European varieties that were brought here. Clogus was the first North American breeding effort, uh, followed by Harrington. Now, those varieties that came from Europe looked just like varieties in europe look today you could get a very good modification on a 38 to 40 s over t you had much lower enzymes the dp on those malts was 95 and maybe a 25 alpha very very much very different and they took five days or six days to malt but the two rows that we have in the united states are very different and and if the um for instance the standard that we had for many years harrington could be modified at relatively to relatively low beta glucan in the S over T range at 42 to 44. So that was off that, that was acceptable and, and most of the craft brewers that started in the 80s and 90s that was their standard. However, today um, a predominant two row AC Metcalf it has to be modified it's a 46 or 48 S over T to get at the beta glucan to reduce it. And if you if you don't take the protein modification to that level, um, the beta glucan is not going to come down. And I think a, a couple other varieties, it explains probably um, why a lot of craft brewers like Copeland more than they like Metcalf. Copeland still has a relatively modest profile like Harrington, and you can get a good modification and a low beta-glucan in that 42 to 44 range. So people tend to look at Copeland as a little bit quieter variety than Metcalf. 
Um, and um, and the reason that people don't like the higher modification varieties is that they will produce higher fan, higher soluble protein. Um, there'll be more artifacts to, to give you a higher color on the kiln. But the point that I want to make sure I get across is there's no one S over T that is correct for every single variety. If you picked a number 44S over T, I can give you varieties that are over-modified at 44, and I can give you varieties that are under-modified at 44. Um, a recent experience that I think brewers have had in this area is why, um, why brewers pretty much rejected the new variety Meredith recently. Are you familiar with uh, Meredith, John? It was a relatively new variety in Canada. And... Um, the reason that, uh, and, and now I just got yesterday, I just received my um, recommended varieties for 2017 in Canada, and Meredith has been dropped from the list. Dropped off, huh? yeah. Yep, it's dropped off now. Now, the reason for that, it required a, another stretch in S over T. It had to be gone. It had to be protein modified to at least 50 to break through to get to the... Um, um, beta-glucan reduction, and it was just, just people thought that uh, it just created too much protein modification artifact, too much soluble protein, too much um, uh, fan, and they were rejecting it on that basis. Again, the point I want to leave with everybody is there's no one single number, and if you look at the, that, that's correct, and if you look at the, the simple math of uh, protein and um, soluble total and ratio, you realize that you can you can uh, you can't come up with three independent numbers. They are mathematically linked. And if you take the concept that total protein is delivered to us for, by nature, and it's going to be the average in the crop that's delivered by by rainfall and climate each year, and we can't modify that when we get it to the malt house. And if you take then the concept that the ratio um, is an indication of modification and you must observe good modification to get good functional malt, well, then the fallout from that is soluble protein. And if you have a, if you have a variety that requires a higher S over T to completely make it functional and you're in a high protein year for total protein, you're going to have some high soluble proteins in your malt. But my point is you have to accept that because the alternative is to instruct the maltster to reduce the modification to give you a lower soluble protein, and you're going to have a range of negative outcomes from less functional malt. So it's important, Joe. So it's just important that, on a yeah. very high level, um, yeah. you know why the why SOT S over T is, um, you know, changes for uh, for is is mm -hmm. different for different varieties. Um, would it be uh, a factor going back to just the 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 breakdown of the different types of protein that are inherent with a different variety? Is is that a factor here? Yeah, I don't know. I I know it seems to be a genetic trait, and that. Um, uh, and I don't, I don't know about the spectrum of, of the proteins that become soluble, John. I do know that that's probably the most, that's the biggest unexplored area. We're satisfied of dividing it up into un insoluble and soluble, but the division of soluble, of how 
you you control the amount of small amino groups and foaming proteins and uh, flavor proteins. Remember that it's an en- it's an enzyme function. As you keep pushing out, as you as you keep pushing out to get the S over T higher and bring soluble or insoluble over to soluble, the enzymes at the same time are chopping up within the soluble, and, it, and it's reducing it to the lowest common diameter. Right. And and left to go to its extreme, you'd end up with all amine groups, and that's why people would. That's why people that object to high S over Ts, they object to it on the basis that you're destroying foaming proteins and you're creating too much fan. Right. That's going to be a hindrance in the process. But it's a balance, and I, I, you know, to me, you have to have, you have to find functional balance. Uh, you have to find how to get functional malt. My argument with with people usually is you look at the you look at the soluble protein you look at the modification requirement if you don't like the outcome don't try to change the degree of modification pick another variety and i think that's what people do when they say i don't really want metcalf i'd rather have copeland or when they say i'm going to reject merith and i'm not going to buy it at all and it drops off the um, approved list i think that's what they're really saying so we talked about the importance of low beta glucan. I feel strongly about that. Now, if we go back to pinning down that focusing on what's really important, because of what the comments I just made about um, about the variety dependence of some analysis, the most important factors that that somebody should look at is first variety. They should know what variety is in the malt either the pure variety or the varietal blend because the because the evaluation of then what is a good s over t and what is the right beta glucan that can be expected those depend on what the variety is so i I would say that that a brewer shouldn't really purchase malt without knowing the variety but the variety the s over t ratio the beta glucan and if we add to that the friability to make sure there's a good comprehensive number, those are the numbers that really define the functionality of uh, the malt. And you don't really need to know the total protein unless you have some some expectations that you want a lower total protein so you can control the amount of, of modification artifacts. In other words, the idea is... If you, if, if you start out that the modification is really critical, sometimes you're going to have higher proteins coming from nature. The varieties are going to be different in their, in their modification factors. If you really want to control what's happening with, um, with soluble protein or with fan, the way you do that is you either put a cap on the protein you'll accept in your malt and I know craft brewers that do that. They they make their long-term agreements with maltsters that say, I will not take any malt that's above 11.5. And they have to acquire barley and lot it for So you can control the outcomes at the far end if you don't allow higher protein into the process, uh, total protein into the process, because then there's less to conversion. Um, or pick a variety that's quieter and doesn't uh, convert out. So, you know, you could, the best... The best profile for that in today's varieties is for a craft brewer that really feels strongly about um, soluble protein or about too much fan. He probably should be thinking more toward Copeland 
and asking for lower protein copeland. That's as best he can get good modification and he would get less um, less of the um, um, protein artifacts at the end. But I don't think, I think if you were picking up a, a, um, a COA and looking at it really closely, you should be really just focused on what variety you're getting. Um, the S over T ratio, the beta-glucan, and the friability of it. Because a lot of other things are artifacts of the growth. And if you try to change the artifacts of, of growth, the only choice the monster has then is to change the growth profile. And that's not good. I think also you should look at, not because they indicate quality malt, but because they're numbers that you need in the um, uh, brewing process for some evaluation, you should you should always look at the extract because you're going to need that to evaluate your yields. You need to have an extract number. Um, you should look at the diastatic power just to be sure that you're above the threshold um, that is necessary for um, uh, for good attenuation. But again, there is so much adequate um, adequate uh, uh, the uh, adequate DP in malt, you really are not going to see numbers. Uh, let me give you an example. When I think about what's what's the number that's necessary to carry the the brewing process, I always look back to um, to Germany and to the heart of all malt brewing uh, and all malt brewing with two rows. And um, in Kunze's book, in his fourth edition, he he describes some requirements for malt and the average of malt shipments in Europe and um, in Germany. And in this particular case, you probably see in the United States DPs that are around 140 units on two row. Well, in Kunze's book, when you after you convert the Windisch Kolbach to um, uh, to U.S. Uh, ASBC system, the average malt shipments in Europe are 75 DP. That's all that it takes to manage an all malt process. High DPs are a function or a problem for adjunct brewers, but we're not seeing any. There's such an abundance of DP. Um, we don't have to. We don't really even have to see it on um, uh, on lab reports. Other than the fact, if we're using a higher kilned base malt, where you might have a reduced DP, you should have it on there to just be sure of that. It's not necessary for for us to look at or worry about fan. Again, using the same strategy, looking back to Europe, what do they do in fan um, in in Europe? Well, they in Europe the average malt shipment on fan is 140 um, units, 140 ppm fan. The average malt shipment that's going to go into two row brewing. Well, in the United States, we ship fans that are 240, uh, 220 all the time, and very rarely under 200. So, if you're if you're having an attenuation problem with an in a in an all malt process with a um, with a with a fan that's that high or a DP that's that high, it's really you need to look elsewhere than than your malt for a DP or fan problem. Yeah, I, I fully agree with that. You know, in my career, I've never once been burned by fan, uh, and yeah. I've only been burned by enzymes one time, and that was a very unusual case where 
uh, received a, a load of uh, wheat malt that had uh, alpha amylase around, down around 10, uh, mm-hmm. which was problematic. But other than that one case, you know, I've never run into uh, receiving malt, you know, that didn't have enough enzymes or, or that had a problem with fan. Well, we'll talk about it as a separate issue. The, the place to, to really watch for that is craft brewers have uh, much more flexibility in what kind of base malt they use. Now, the adjunct brewers, they use this standard pale base malt with the high enzymes in them. But craft brewers, because that number can be as low as 75, they can use much more widely varying um, base malts. They can use more highly kilned base malts that where the they won't be shipped at 140, they'll be shipped at 90. So that's just something to think about when we talk about color and flavor. Uh, the other thing that I don't think that that craft monsters should worry about at all is uh, on malt analysis is to look at alpha amylase. It's a it's a function. It's problem for for um, um, for adjunct brewers. But again, looking back to the standards for two row malt in Germany, where there's all malt brewing. They don't even talk about alpha amylase. There's such an abundance in the balance of enzymes within DP. There's such an abundance of alpha amylase. There's really no reason to report it. A typical German uh, malt report does not have alpha amylase on it. Yeah. It doesn't matter. Right. Um, and the uh, it's partly because uh, that's not part of the enzyme profile that's damaged by uh, by kilning. Um, so, uh, and I, and I've had a malt scientist tell me, look, he says, Joe, you could take, and you could add, um, you could add exogenous alpha amylase to a malt sample where you're going to run analysis and it won't change the DP of that malt sample because there's such an abundance in the enzyme balance in there that having more of it won't make any difference. So there's more than enough for, for our process. Yeah. So, so again, keep, keep dialing back to focusing what's really important. To me, it's we really have to focus on the, um, the modification factors, the transition from barley to malt. And um, for protein and for carbohydrate modification, we, as brewers, we do want to know um, what the extract is, and we do want to know what the DP is. Possibly, we want to know about the sizing assortment, so we might <clears throat> want to make mill adjustments. But, but I don't think there's anybody that looks at a malt analysis and then preemptively adjust their mill. I just don't think it uh, it works that way. Yeah, yeah. Great. Well, um, to kind of uh, wrap up, uh, to to wrap up kind of your points here, I think you know the the real takeaways for me are you know get rid of some of these um, some of these parameters that the that like you said the malter doesn't even really have specific uh, control over, and then you know focus on focus on these ones that are that are really important. Getting away from from some of these uh, analyses that are very uh, old and, and obsolete. Yeah. Um, and then also, you know, uh, getting rid of other analyses that are, um, you know, that are not relevant to, to, to all malt brewers as well. So, um, that, that's, uh, that's great. I think you did a great job of really kind well, of, let me, yeah, let me, uh, and let me, I, let me just hit one more of my favorite yeah. analysis that shouldn't be on and one right. of my, that shouldn't be on it as part of wrap up. Um, so your least count. favorite analysis is what my least saying. favorite analysis <laughs> right. is, is growth counts. Okay. okay. Because growth counts are really, really important in the management of the process when there's green malt and you can see and get the acrospire. But when you 
kiln and dry the malt and then clean it, it means nothing. And it's impossible to do. What you're getting on a malt analysis, typically when you see a growth count, is the um, the maltster is transferring over some of the growth counts that he made at the very end of the process and he associates with this batch of malt coming through. But it's not done on, on finished malts. Um, so, you know, I just focus on what's the critical indicators of a successful barley to malt transition. Okay, just get put aside, separate the modification factors from the outcomes that a maltster gets from modification. And it doesn't can't control. Like you say, they don't specifically control soluble protein or they don't specifically control fan. They control S over T and they control beta glucan. And, you know, move away from the ones that I mentioned that are redundant and kind of obsolete now fine coarse and viscosity and then put aside the ones that aren't material at all to all malt brewing of the fan and the alpha amylase and again you can look at this two ways you can ask for a simplified malt analysis with just the key numbers on it or you can train yourself there's there's a couple things that you can do you can just ask for a simplified analysis you can at least ask the maltster to group the analysis into bundles in all the protein things together all the uh, carbohydrate things together um or you just condition yourself to, to your eye goes to the most important numbers, and I, I think it can be. I think it can be simpler than it looks. I think we have fallen into the trap of reporting on COAs everything that we can do. Yeah, give me more numbers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I'm not going to do anything with. <laughs> yeah, we put we put them on there of what we can do, and it's good to have this kind of discussion and and go back to just really really what's important and what is an indicator of quality of a quality malting process that's great well thanks a lot joe um okay. you want to give uh listeners a preview i know you've you've agreed to to come back and, and talk to us about some more things you want to give a a preview about what's on deck next yes i want I, next i want to talk about uh, i want to talk about color and flavor and kilning because one of the things that's obvious to all of us as brewers is there's not a numerical specification or there's not a way to define in a traditional malt specification flavor. And what come what 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 uh, what we need to talk about in flavor is definitions of kilning techniques and approaches to create flavor because if we leave if we leave flavor out of the discussion and only work with numerical results the only numerical results we have are color moisture and don't kill the enzymes well we can do better than that uh, by talking about flavor and the methodology of developing flavor in malt. And that's what I, I'm, I'm looking forward to talking to, uh, to you about the next opportunity. Excellent. Well, thanks a lot, Joe. Really appreciate okay. your time. Okay. Thanks, John. I learn more each time I hear Joe speak. Would you like to spend all day with Joe in a classroom? Enroll in the always sold out two-week MBAA Brewing and Malting Science course. This year, six brewers attended free of charge on Master Brewer Scholarships. Click the Education tab at mbaa.com to learn more. Did you know that Master Brewers now has a mobile app? TQ articles, podcasts, webinars, Ask the Brewmasters, and more, all in the same place. 
Search Master Brewers in the App Store to download it now. Just like that one day, like everyone else did. Countdown, I'm moving too fast.